Welcome to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is the show for skeptics and Christians who want to learn more about the Bible and understand better how to interpret and apply it. We hope you enjoy this program. In this episode, Rob continues with the second half of The Kingdom of God. He focuses on Luke chapters 10 and 11 and attempts to show how the Gospels portray Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and dreams. They expand those dreams to universal proportions by including the marginalized and the outcast. The kingdom of God is not about power and domination, but vulnerability, trust, and apparent weakness. Now here's your host, Rob Massey. So let's look at a few Christian texts. It's important to understand that the Christian texts uh, creatively step through this ancient dialogue of Hebrew texts. And they selected key passages to either correct the behaviors or the wrongs of a king or a prophet or a priest, or to highlight the words and the actions that exemplify kingdom behavior. David was not all good, but he wasn't all bad. Solomon was not all good, but he wasn't all bad. Moses was not all good. He made some mistakes. Elijah and Elisha, the same thing. But when you go and you look at the life of Christ and the life that was anticipated for his disciples, you're going to see that Christ was calling, Jesus was calling for um, a different approach sometimes. And we're going to see that in one very poignant example in the life of Elijah that Jesus brings up when his disciples are concerned about kingdom and power and authority and all of that kind of stuff. In the Gospels, one of the key methods for communicating the truth is through overlaying the actions of the king, prophet, or priest onto the life of Christ. For example, if Jesus raised someone from the dead, it was compared to the actions of another prophet, like Elijah or Elisha. In Luke 6, Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead. And in verse 15 of that chapter, uses very similar language to when Elisha raised the only child, a son, of a Shunammite woman. That's in 2 Kings, uh, the fourth chapter. Also in 2 Kings 4, Elisha multiplies the loaves of barley so all 100 of the prophets that were with him could eat. After the men were done eating, it is recorded that they had some left over. Elijah performed a miracle there with that 100 people. But Luke records that Jesus did it with 5,000 people. So see what he did? He took, Jesus took five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000 and had 12 baskets of fragments left. The idea is, if you think Jesus is the prophet like Elisha, you're really aiming low. He's that and more, right? So he takes something good from Elisha, and he exp- the, the New Testament writers expanded it in the life of Jesus. In addition to his being a prophetic comparison of Elisha and his miracle, but on a grander scale, it's important to see that he's being compared with Elisha and Elisha's miracles, but on a grander scale. It is also a comparison to Moses feeding the nation in the wilderness for, uh, with manna. And in a nuanced comparison, Jesus, quote, welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, end quote. Just like Moses in the passage that we quoted earlier from Exodus 19, 
They were to be a, uh, in the wilderness, they were to be a kingdom of priests. What was God speaking to them out of the mountains? How to be a kingdom. He was speaking to them. Moses was delivering them laws and rules and forms because that's what kingdoms do. They form. Kingdoms form. Moses was forming a kingdom. He was talking to them about the kingdom of God. So as God was going to make the Israelites in the wilderness a kingdom of priests, so the people who followed Jesus were going to be a kingdom. As we will see, it, it will be a kingdom without borders, specific language, or national identity. It was going to be a kingdom that whizzed way beyond the nation of Israel. But one formed by the individual relationships of each citizen with the king himself. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? The story of Jesus to the first hearers of it was like saying, you know that time when the great prophet Elisha performed such and such a thing? Well, Jesus did the same thing with better results. Or you know when that great prophet Moses did this or that? Well, Jesus did more. By the way, it's not only the actions, but inaction. When Solomon killed all the potential usurpers of the, of the throne and all of his father David's enemies, Jesus does a love your enemies thing. No violent response to attack kind of thing. Time fails me to present the myriad of examples of this retelling, but know that probably every story, action, or word the gospel writers put into the mouth of Jesus was likely a reference to some event in Jewish history. Jesus' words and actions were of a kind that were familiar to those who heard and saw him. Okay, so with that in mind, let's highlight a couple things in Luke 9 and 10 about the characteristics of the kingdom of God. Luke 9 starts out with Jesus calling the 12 and transferring power and authority over to them uh, to do what Jesus alone performed in the earlier chapters of Luke. So from Luke 4 all the way through to Luke 9, everything that has been done, every miracle performed has been done by Jesus. And now Jesus is transferring that authority and that power over to his disciples. Note that there's 12 of them. The disciples were casting out demons and curing diseases. Um, now, in an age of reason, it is uh, a little challenging to accept the phenomenal language of the ancient writers, but I think uh, there can be a coming together of minds between the mystery of the ancients and the rationalization of us moderns. When a survey of the Hebrew scriptures is performed relative to demons and physical maladies, something interesting emerges. Jesus healed people of the conditions that the ancient Hebrew writers associated with idolatry. Just quickly read Psalm 115 uh, verses 4 and 8. Uh, Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So he's talking about the creation of idols of silver and gold. These idols had eyes and ears and a mouth and hands and feet but couldn't see, hear, speak, smell, they couldn't, they couldn't do any real work. They couldn't move themselves. They were, they were, they were lame in their feet. They, their hands were immobile. What were, all the, what were all the things that Jesus was, for, was, was healing? Blindness, hearing, 
couldn't speak, dumbness. Uh, they, they were lame in their feet. They couldn't walk. These were all symbolic ways of saying this nation has become idolatrous like the nations of the world. So when Jesus sends out to cast out demons, the idea is, is that the images of God, people, had now been empowered and were acting as images of the gods of the ancient Near East. And as images, they had the characteristics of their gods, which were eyes but couldn't see and ears but couldn't hear and mouths that couldn't speak. And Jesus not only does that physically for them, but he also does that spiritually. He says, to you it is revealed. To you it is given. Open their eyes. You know, thank you, Lord, that you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent and you've revealed these things unto babes. Everything that Jesus did was about overturning idolatrous frameworks or worldviews that had gotten embedded into this idea of God. Remember how we started this an hour ago? It was the, the gods, there was a misconception of God, that he was a mean and angry, that he wanted slaves and servants to do his bidding and in some arbitrary laws. But Jesus comes and he's expressing somebody something different. So let's look at that. Let's look at uh, these verses here in Luke 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So it's all about sending them out to spread the good news. So that's your be fruitful and multiply part of it. And it's about the kingdom of God, which is the dominion part of it. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. Remember Israel in, in the 12th chapter of Exodus? They were to have the staff in the hand. They took silver and gold from the Egyptians. They, they, they had clothes on their feet. But, but this new generation, this, the people who were going to follow this king, Jesus, they were to take nothing for their journey. No staff, you know, contra Exodus 12, 11, or bag in their hand. They weren't carrying silver and gold, nor bread. Remember the leavened bread in Exodus 12, 34, when they, they didn't have time to let the bread rise? So they were not to take bread with them. No money. And do not have two tu tu uh, tunics. And whatever house you enter in, stay there. Remember Exodus 12, verses 4 and verses 22 of Exodus 12? Those passages say, don't go from house to house. If, you, if it's not enough for you to eat, go into another house and you guys share the lamb. So they were to go into a house. So this is basically Jesus sending out the 12, just like God delivered the 12, the 12 families or the 12 tribes of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And whatever house you enter there, stay. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel everywhere and healing everywhere. And the 10th verse says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And they took them and they withdrew apart from, to a town called Bethsaida. So they were excited about it. And they welcomed him. They, they went into Bethsaida and they welcomed him into this town. And the crowds went in and they were like, you know, excited. They were in this desolate place. They were in the wilderness. So this whole sending out of the 12 here in the ninth chapter, if you'll accept it, is just like God delivering the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. 
And he sent, but instead of them having a staff in their hand and shoes on their feet and extra clothes and bags and leaving with their possessions to go into the wilderness, although they were to go into the wilderness to trust God, the disciples of Jesus are to be sent into the world to preach the kingdom of God, to be king, a kingdom of priests. They were to go into the wilderness, right? That's everything outside of the, of the garden of God. They were to go out into the wilderness and they were to preach the kingdom of God, but they were not to take any provision. It was, a, it was an act of total vulnerability. Now, what kind of nation, what kind of kingdom building do you think starts with the principle of vulnerability? The kingdom of God does. The kingdom of God is not to be like the kingdoms of men, and we're going to see that. Uh, later on here in, in these verses, you see that he takes five loaves and two fishes, and he gives them to 5,000 men. So just like Moses fed them with manna in the wilderness, Jesus is sending, sending them down and giving them manna. But just like Moses said, don't take any more than you need. Only take the manna for the provision for the day. Don't take any more because it'll breed worms. Jesus, when he's done feeding them, they take up 12 baskets of fragments. They've got a bunch left over. And why did they gather it up? This is a kingdom of abundance. It's a kingdom of vulnerability and trust in God, but it's also a kingdom that says, you trust in me and you'll have more than you can even imagine. Don't try to hoard. Don't try to take and store up. And that goes for spiritual things like the love we give, the grace we show, the mercy we show. And it also goes to the physical things, the money we give, the time we spend with others. In the 18th verse of the ninth chapter, uh, Jesus is alone praying, and the disciples come to him, and they and Jesus says, "Who are the crowds saying that I am? Who am I? Who do they say I am?" They say, "Well, uh, they think you're Elijah, or or one of the other prophets that has risen from old." He's talking about like Moses saying, "God shall raise up a prophet like me to him shall you hearken." He says, "You're like a prophet like Moses, or you're like a prophet like Elijah," and then he's like. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah of God. You're the king that God has brought into the world to set up the, his kingdom. And Jesus says, yes, we're, now that you know that, let's strap on your sword. Let's go into battle because I've got 5,000 men over here. We're going to go in and we're going to take this territory. I'm going to set myself up as king. Right? That's what the devil tempted him with in the Luke 4. Bow down to me and I will give you, I'll make you like Caesar. I'll make you like all the kings of the earth. But he doesn't say that, actually. In the 21st verse, he strictly charged them that they tell no one. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. The power brokers of Jesus's day were going to reject him. They were going to reject because the power brokers reject vulnerability. They reject trust. They reject giving of ourselves. He says they'll be rejected and he'll be I'll be killed. The son of man will be killed and on the third day be raised. But he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So there's this path. There's this path to trusting God that the king is following. 
And all those that are part of the kingdom will follow that same path of vulnerability, trust, blessing, abundance. These are the things that are characteristic of our king, and it'll be the characteristic of us. Now, notice what happens. Jesus is in the wilderness. The, he, the 12 go out. They've been empowered, just like Moses empowered those followers of him to help him support the nation. These 12 are now empowered, and they're going out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And now, eight days after those things that occurred in the 28th verse of the ninth chapter, Peter and John and James, they go up to a mountain to pray. And as they were praying, so Jesus goes up with his three closest friends. Just like Moses went up to Mount Sinai with his three closest friends, Jesus goes up with his three closest. And as they were up there, Jesus was praying and his appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. I guess we're not surprised to see that because people were putting Jesus Oh, maybe he's a prophet like Moses, or maybe he's like Elijah. Maybe he's Elijah raised up. So now we see Jesus with these two men talking, Moses and Elijah, and who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. They're speaking of Jesus' death, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those that were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw the glory of the two men who stood with Jesus. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to him, Master, it is good that we were here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So now what do we have? We have a misunderstanding again. Even though Peter had proclaimed Jesus as being Messiah, the King of, of God, despite him claiming that just a few verses ago, he's still putting Elijah and Moses on the same, on the same uh, plane as Jesus when he says, let's make three tabernacles. But God is now telling you who he's really talking about. He's talking about, this is my beloved son. My chosen one, listen to him. What's he saying? He's saying that don't listen to Elijah. Don't listen to Moses. Their vision was partial. As good as they were, they still did not have the full perspective of God. But this is my son. The son, who knows the heart of the father more than the son does? And now taking those claims from the Psalms that we had read earlier, Psalm 89, he was going to make the future son of David a son to him. They were going to be a father. He was going to be a father to him. This is very interesting to me. On the next day, this is verse 37 of the ninth chapter. On the very next day, they come down the mountain. A great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, Take a look at my son. He's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. So a spirit gets a hold of him. And suddenly he cries out and it convulses him. So he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. 
I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long shall I be with you and how long shall I bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to the father. And they were astonished at the majesty of God. So what we're to see here is just like Moses came down from the mountain after being you know, radiated by God's presence, getting the two tables of stone, he comes down and what does he see? He sees this idol set up and the people dancing and, and in a frenzy. Moses breaks the tablets and crushes the image and throws it into the water and he causes the people to drink and the people, it says that their bellies they became sick. That w- one of the other gospel writers tells the same story. And when the father is telling Jesus about what, the behaviors of his son, he says, sometimes he casts himself into the water and sometimes into the fire. I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. There's a, a nuanced storytelling here. This imagery of a, of a little boy possessed of a spirit that throws him into the fire and throws him into the water is an example of the idolatry of all of Israel. Just like Israel at the base of Mount Sinai worshiping the golden calf, this calf that they said that was created from casting uh, um, gold into a fire and out came this golden calf, and then Moses casting that same calf into the water in a granular form and then being drank by the people, and then they began to foam at the mouth. They became sick. This is the same thing. He's saying, this boy is an example of all of Israel. But while they were marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And remember this. Jesus is not on the cross dying is not an example of an angry God who's taking out his wrath. It is an example of angry men who want to maintain their power, their control, their domination systems. And that's the result. It's the death of the innocent is the result of empire. Not the result of an angry God. And that's what Jesus is exemplifying. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They, and, but they did not understand. This was concealed to them that they might not perceive, and they were afraid to ask him any questions. See, they were still a little idolatrous. They couldn't see. They couldn't perceive. They had, they had a malady of perception. And an argument arose, uh, arose among them about who was the greatest They wanted to know who was the greatest in the kingdom. They couldn't cast out this devil out of this little boy who was tormented. And now all they wanted, and they they can't perceive what Jesus is saying, yet they go back to the argument about who is the greatest. Listen, when the kingdom of God, whether it's Muslim, Jew, or Christian, and then you break them down into their various sects, and then you break them down into their various subgroups and branches, there's 
Everyone thinks they're the greatest. Everyone thinks that they've got the answers from God. But I submit to you that we still have a problem with our understanding and our perception as disciples. That we have, are still asking questions about which is the greatest in the kingdom. But Jesus, knowing their reasoning, took a child. Remember Psalm 8 and the powerful, we were made a little lower than the angels, but we were crowned with glory and honor and set over the works of God's hands. But he says that his power was displayed in the praises of infants and babes. And now he brings a child and he puts him by his side and he says to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives him, or receives him who sent me, receives me. And he set the child by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And in whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Unless one can humble a puffed up heart and in Jesus' name, associate and receive a person as small as they may be and as insignificant as maybe a child might be considered. That one will not be able to receive Jesus and that one will not be able to receive the one who sent Jesus. We cannot be part of the kingdom of God long-term if we continue to hold on to a puffed up heart, we've got to humble ourselves. We've got to associate with the lowly. Remember what the attributes in Psalm 72 were? He takes up the, 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 the cry of the poor and of the humble. He shows mercy to the weak. And it's when we connect with people that seem to be marginalized, seem to be uh, low, we're exemplifying the kingdom of God there. And then here's just the characteristic. We, you know, as Christians, we, we love our altruism. We really pride ourselves on compassing land and sea to build bathrooms and feed the poor. And we should. But when other people do it, non-Christian groups, there are plenty of non-Christian uh, groups that go out and do good things. We want to marginalize it. We want to we somehow say, well, they're not doing it with the Spirit of God. So it doesn't have, it's only works. But I love this, this passage here. John answered in the 49th verse, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he did not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. It's an amazing example of human nature. We want to be the greatest. That We might not be able to cast out all the devils or solve all the problems, but we certainly are in an attitude to forbid people who might be doing it, but we don't think that they're following properly. How many churches won't let some guy in their church marry some girl in another church because they're a different uh, background. We call that unequal yoking. Uh, you got to be yoking. Look at verse 51. Here's an example 
of the rejection that Jesus warned the 12 that they were going to be part of. Jesus warned the 12 that they were going to be rejected. And now when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him to enter into the village of the Samaritans to, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set to go towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? But he turned to them and rebuked them. And he went on to another village. You see what was happening? They were seeing the rejection of Jesus and the kingdom by the Samaritan village. They were seeing that rejection as worthy of being consumed by fire. They wanted to destroy them. Their mindset of kingdom was still about domination and elimination of your enemies. And, and the fact that some of the manuscripts add, shall we call down fire and consume them as Elijah did? Because that's what Elijah did. Elijah kept calling down fire and consuming the messengers of the king. And we're not to be that way. He's, he's saying, Elijah had a lot of good things going for him, but he was still calling down fire. But the true kingdom of God, the true heart of God is not to call down fire on people. So the remainder of that chapter is them talking about the cost of discipleship and that they were going to maintain that vulnerability. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man does not have a place to lay his head. And they move on down through. There's some other interesting things there, but in the interest of time, and I know you've already borne with me for a good minute. After this, 10th chapter, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet one another on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. And if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking that they provide for the labor deserves his wages. Wherever town you go into and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. What I want you to see here is that Jesus is sending out now 72. So at the beginning of the ninth chapter, he sends out 12. That's kind of like the 12 uh, families, the 12 tribes of Israel leaving Egypt, going into the wilderness, testing, testing their trust in God. It was kind of failing somewhat, and they, they had challenges. Then later on in Numbers, Moses uh, uh, calls for 70 to join him, and he puts a, God puts a little bit of Moses' spirit onto the 70 to go out and do what they were doing. Uh, here we have 72 appointed. Now, remember what I said about these are now representatives. I, th I think that the 70 in, in the nation that came into, uh, into Egypt and then appointing 70 elders to manage those people, that all represents God's long-term plan to send people out into the 70 nations or into the 72 nations. Some manuscripts of Luke 
quote uh, the Masoretic text and they say 70. Others quote 72. They're trying to make, they're trying to resolve it because they recognized that there was some sort of connection here. So here's the 72 that are being sent out. And in the 17th verse, they're excited because they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that spirits are subject to you, because that can lead to pride, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, they had, they had been given the same power and authority that Jesus had been given. And, and Jesus foresees this binding of the kingdom of Satan. As we go into the 11th chapter, you're going to see passages about them saying that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus is saying, what? If Satan cast out Satan, his kingdom is divided. What what are you talking about? He says, but if I'm casting out devils by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. It's evidenced by the people turning from their idolatry to serving the true and living God. And you need to get on board. That's basically what he's saying in the 11th chapter. But back here in the 10th chapter, he goes on after he sees and he's rejoicing. He says in that same hour, verse 21, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, For such was your gracious will. So you notice here, it's about children. These men, these 70 that went out, these 72 that went out, Jesus is rejoicing that these children, he's calling them innocents. He's calling them the the weak. He's calling them the, the dismissed of the community that God was revealing to them. Let's not be surprised when God first reveals important concepts to people who are probably not the highest order of man. They're not most educated. Paul says over there in 1 Corinthians, uh, the uh, end of the first chapter, you see your calling, brethren and sisters, not many wise after the flesh, not many noble after the flesh, but God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. What, what am I driving at here? And, and I could go on and on through the 10th and the 11th chapter. It just, it continues to unfold this, this plan of God to set up a kingdom that's led by a meek king that does not call fire down when he's rejected, but he embraces, he loves, he, he's patient with his own. He's patient with those that are outside. He's constantly seeking. He's He's multiplying bread, and then he's got some to left over. But it's a kingdom of people who are vulnerable. It's not not the powerful organizations. It's not the powerful Christian organizations. It's not our lobbyists in, in Washington. That's not it. It's not jihad that's going to get it done. It's not the death of the infidel that gets it done. It's the love of others It's giving ourselves like the king that God was going to set on his throne, the one that God was going to call son, 
was going to have an attitude of peace and grace and love. And, and that was supposed to go out. Instead of the 70, instead of the nation being called a kingdom of priests, and then them sit there quietly and keep all the goodies to themselves, they were to take the blessing of Abraham and promote that and push that out. That's what we're to do. As the 12 went out and blessed, as the 70 or the 72 went out and blessed, that's what we're to do. We're to go into all the world. That's the multiplication, going into all the world and preaching the gospel unto every creature. That's multiplying. And that gospel is about the kingdom, and that kingdom has a king, and that king's name is Jesus, and Jesus exemplified the heart of God, the true heart of God, which was a universal. That's why it had to leave. It became a universal gospel under Paul. That's why my Islamic brethren and my Jewish brethren reject Paul, because he had a universal view. And I'm not saying everything Paul said was spot on. But what I am saying is that Paul had a universal view of what God was doing. And because he created a universal king, a universal Messiah, because he exemplified uh, through his teachings, this I'm talking about Paul right now, because he exemplified in his teachings all of, of how God was to interweave The message of God was interwoven throughout all of the words of the prophets, all the words of the kings. It was in there. It was embedded in there, but it was latent. It was somehow forgotten or dismissed. And that was that God was going to be, send his son to be king over the entire world. I want to close with this from Revelation, the fifth chapter, uh, the 10th verse. And it sums up the commission and the purpose of the kingdom of God. And uh, it's, this is from the Phillips translation, which I really enjoy. Worthy are thou to take the book and break its seals. This is referring to Christ. For thou hast been slain and by thy blood hast purchased for God men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Thou hast made them a kingdom of of priests for our God, and they shall reign as kings upon the earth. You see what John is saying there in his vision and these words of this angel? That, That Jesus was powerful enough to unlock the mysteries of God. And the mystery of God was that he was going to redeem all of humanity from their sin, from their, their, their bloodlust, their, for their lust for power, their greed for more, this tendency towards kingdom that, uh, that an empire and this imperialistic uh, thirst that drove men and women around this world to, to take more and to take more and to take more. That insatiable desire that was latent in humanity was redeemed by a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that was to spread blessing and love and bounty and beauty and grace. And it was a kingdom that was going to be purchased just like the the children of Israel were purchased, so to speak, from Egyptian bond to slavery 
They were, they were, they were purchased from bondage. Every man, woman, and child is now purchased. And what were they purchased by? The death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn in Egypt, that's what led to the purchase of, of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And what's going to deliver every kingdom, nation, tongue, and people, what's going to deliver them from their bondage is the blood of the lamb, the one who was slain by angry men, men who want to maintain empire. So I hope this provides some, I gave a lot of detail over the last two episodes, but I hope that you gain something from it, that you have a different perspective on how to even read the scriptures, because there's an interest. It becomes very, very interesting when you start to see these connections between the life of Christ and the, and the manifestation. But if you're still putting, <laughs> sorry about the reset. If you're still putting Moses and Elijah, if you're still putting the prophets on the same level, then man, you can justify anything. You can justify calling down fire on your enemies. You can, ju- you can justify infanticide. You can justify killing off people. You can justify xenophobic tendencies. But if you're going after the retelling of the story by Jesus, if you're reading the, the Gospels and the rest of the Christian scriptures with this, this enlivened new telling of what the true kingdom is about, then you're going to not walk out down that path. You're not going to justify your behaviors but from some Old Testament passage that says, go in and slay utterly and dash their children against rocks. You're not going to pick those passages. By the way, our, our atheist brothers are, are stumbling over those verses. If we don't tell them a better message, what they're going to continue to do is go, oh yeah, what kind of God dashes children against stones and commands it and laughs? But that's not the God we serve. The God we serve is a God that was fully declared in Jesus who went through his life trusting God, serving others, and sacrificially giving himself for the entire world. Thank you for listening to the Planet Jesus podcast. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and you could have chosen any, but we sincerely appreciate your investment of time into this one. The show notes for this and all episodes, as well as links to any source material, can be found at our website, planetjesus.net. Become a part of the conversation on Facebook at Planet Jesus Podcast and on Twitter at Planet Jesus and the number two. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe and share it with a friend. We would also value your honest rating and review. If you'd like to help defer some of the costs, please visit our Patreon account at patreon.com slash planetjesus. The Planet Jesus Podcast is a production of Rob Massey and edited by me, David L. White. 